I am a teacher first. The reason why I wanted to become a coach is because like Principal Mola said, I was once those kids or that child. I had a lot of different life circumstances. They, they were just set against me and I was not supposed to be where I am today. Hi, I'm Diane Sweeney, and I'm the author of The Essential Guide for Student-Centered Coaching and our new book, Student-Centered Coaching from a Distance. And I'm Brandon Lewis, and I'm an innovation and learning coach in Liberty, Missouri. And this is Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast, where we sit down with coaches and teachers to explore how they are supporting student learning. Our hope is that through sharing these stories, we can all grow together. Welcome. Today's teacher interview is with Claire, who teaches fourth grade here in Colorado. And it's a really funny story how I met Claire. And so cool that she's now on our podcast because Claire and I met, well, it's very Colorado, actually. We met on a chairlift this winter and she and I were riding up the lift and we got to chatting and it turned out she was a teacher. And of course, I had to ask her where and it turned out we had some mutual colleagues and I know some of you are thinking, well, why would you be riding a chairlift so close to somebody you don't know during COVID? And the good news is it was a six person lift. So we were spread out, but we were, <laughs> we were talking about our passion for education. And I don't know, when I got off that chairlift, I had a feeling I'd be talking to Claire again. And here we are, so welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I love that we were able to make that connection. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun. Um, a little bit about your teaching background would be helpful or what's your, yeah. I guess, what's your classroom like more than anything? Okay. Um, yeah. So this is my second year of teaching. Um, so I started in 2019. So I've never taught a full year in person, um, <laughs> which is interesting. And um, last year I taught fifth grade math and this year I'm teaching fourth grade um, in a public school. I teach in Northwest Aurora, um, which is just east of Denver, and I serve in a very diverse neighborhood. Um, and I'm fortunate to have that like represented totally in my class. I have several students who are um, who came to America as refugees from um, all over the world, uh, like Chad, Burma, Thailand, Nepal, um, Tanzania, Honduras, El Salvador, really all over, um, which just brings a really special culture to the classroom. Um, most of my students live in poverty and are in programs that provide them with um, food and resources for home. Um, and they're really the most wonderful kids. Um, they come from families who are supportive and eager to help their children succeed and really grateful for education. So we've been having, um, I would say a great year despite the circumstances and as we were talking about before, fourth grade is a really special year. Yeah, fourth grade is a special year. It's my favorite year to teach personally. Um, but it just struck me, gosh, when you said it's your second year of teaching and only a few months mm -hmm. of in-person teaching. And I, I'm yeah. guessing you never expected to be an online teacher when you went to get your degree. <laughs> no, um, not at all. I, I do think as I reflect, I mean, it's hard to remember those lessons now, but I think my, my program prepared me pretty well for online. Um, 
I went to school in Michigan and there were some standards for, for educators around technology and some of those things have really come in handy, but yes, there have been lots of surprises these first couple of years, um, as if there weren't enough already being a, a new teacher. So, <laughs> yeah, gosh. And so as we're kind of in the spring of the end of this second year, second spring, we've been, um, impacted by this as you're kind of, I bet you're starting to be a little bit retrospective and thinking about what can you carry forward? What, what lessons learned have there been? If you were to name a couple or one or two, what would, what would you say you really want to keep going with having, having been through this disruptive experience as a teacher? Yeah. Um, as you said, I've definitely been reflecting and I think I will be for a long time from this. Um, obviously it's been a really difficult time, but from that we can learn so much, which is, which is great. Um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that kids are resilient. Um, and I think, I think a lot of the voices surrounding the issue of teaching and education in the pandemic have been pretty frantic about how kids are going to be behind. Um, and we'll have to catch up, you know, socially, academically, just a lot of loss this year, which is so valid and very true. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was a lot missed and a lot of time out of the classroom for, for most kids, um, especially in the community I teach in. Um, but I have also seen that like kids can do it, you know, as we look ahead to where we want our students to be in a few years, I really do think that we need to believe that they'll get there um, and already we've been back in person for a couple months at my school and I've seen so many of my students bounce back already um, and those kids who are just eager to learn are going to find a way um, <laughs> being in the pandemic teaching online um, connecting with my students over google meet I was able to see that with you know students who are putting a blanket over their bunk bed to make like a quiet space to learn or um, taking the iPhone into the car to go to work with dad, you know, and just really um, finding a way and, and adjusting quickly. And um, yeah, they've learned, they have learned a lot um, despite, you know, all the disruptions. And um, yeah, I think even when restrictions are a thing of the past and, um, and we're back to some normalcy, I think, you know, we're definitely going to have gaps and delays and things to fill, but um, yeah, I think the kids are gonna be all right. And so when they look ahead in my career, um, you know, this only being year two, I think it's, it's gonna be something that I look back on and remind myself to maintain those high expectations for students, um, regardless of what's going on. Um, you know, because we always hear as teachers what's going on at home and, um, you know, friendship issues and things going on all over the place, which, um, you know, our kids, you know, are dealing with a lot, but it's important to, yeah, maintain those high expectations, really challenge them and push them um, to persevere because it's, it's just so important to help them build those skills they need and, um, and yeah, just to really build their future. So that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned in this time. That's so great to go to that high expectations mindset because otherwise we're not serving students. And to say that, yeah, there's been learning loss. Okay, we don't want that to become 
our key driver in schools is feeling lost or it's so negative, but your approach is so positive. It's like, they're resilient. They can do it. I need to challenge them. We're all going to get there. That um, spirit is huge. And it's awesome that you feel ready for that and ready to tackle that. You um, also are thinking a little bit about your instruction and any, like, if there was one practice that you found was super important this year that you want to keep using, what would that be? Yeah, um, there, I mean, obviously a lot of technology that I've been able to um, get some practice with, whether it's, you know, Pear Deck or Flipgrid, there's been some really cool new learning with those. And then being back in the classroom, um, I've seen, you know, some widened gaps which already would have been, you know, um, probably uh, in my classroom anyway, but just realizing that even in fourth grade with these upper elementary students, um, small group has been really valuable. And, um, you know, just, just recognizing the diverse needs of every student and pulling them into groups based on their needs and um, building those relationships quickly that way. And just having time for them to work on focused skills has been, um, has been really, really helpful to, to uh, see them grow. So carrying that small group work forward, valuing that and seeing that as being uh, an essential practice that you were able to do through technology, but you're also able to do now that you're back in person uh, and the relationship building part of that. How much does a fourth grader love to be with the teacher without... <laughs> the whole class, but just with a few other kids where they can get what they need. So that's that's truly about taking care of kids and differentiating. Yeah. 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 Relationships have been huge in this time too. Um, oh, gosh. You know, I think about last last spring when, when we were really just kind of in emergency mode and, um, you know, we, we weren't focused on lessons. It was more like call the kids and see how they're doing. Yes. And, um, yeah. And it was just able, you know, we were able to connect with kids in a, in a new way that I think was really, really valuable. So, yeah. Well, your kids are so lucky to have you. And I'm so glad that you're able to share your perspective being a new teacher, newish, not first year, but newish teacher in this environment and all that you're taking away and how much you still believe in your kids. And that alone is so, so huge. And I hope that maybe we can see each other on a chairlift in the future, maybe take a run or two together and yes. uh, keep talking about education. What do you think? Oh, that sounds great. Yes. And thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me. And yeah, I really just have to give the credit to my students for inspiring me in this time. And, um, and yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. We're going to be hearing from a principal and coach team in a secondary school in the Washington, D.C. area. And it's going to be a great conversation. I have absolute certainty about that because this is a dynamic team doing amazing work. And I got to meet them during a webinar we did in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And they shared one thing during the webinar share out. And I said, I need to know those two more. We need to talk about this. So we're excited to bring them to the podcast today and have a chance to just explore the work they're doing around coaching and leadership. So welcome, you guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. 
So to be specific, we have here Mr. Mola and Ms. Ingram. Mr. Mola is the principal at Cardozo Middle and High School, which is a, a combined campus, education campus, grades six through 12. And Ms. Ingram is the, one of the coaches there. And so let's just start with Mr. Mola. If you would just share a little bit about Cardozo, because it's a castle on the hill is what it's named as in the, in, the, in the neighborhood, that's how the school's referred to. And if you ever see a picture of the school, you can tell there is a ton of history um, at this school, which is pretty interesting. But tell us a little bit about the school and your history there, if you would. I would be happy to. Um, so first and foremost, I went ahead and switched my background to the castle on the hill. I hope you guys <laughs> can see it there. And I, ironically, you know, my first name is Arthur. So as, as Cardozo is intimately known as the castle on the hill, wouldn't it be fitting that the principal's name is Arthur, who's King Arthur <laughs> of the castle on the hill. So I like to think that my, my arrival to Cardozo was actually prophetic and, um, and somehow, you know, meant to be. But historically speaking, uh, Cardozo Education Campus was once known as Cardozo High School, and that sign is still in the main, uh, above the main entrance of the school building. And uh, it's, it's been Cardozo since 1928. Uh, for, for a period of time, Cardozo moved into what was at the time known as Central High School. So knowing the importance uh, of Cardozo High School, you need to go back to understanding Central High School and know that you had, um, alumni from Central High School who were J. Edgar Hoover, um, the father uh, and former uh, admiral of um, the Naval Academy, John McCain. John McCain Jr., who's the dad of John McCain III, the, uh, the Arizona senator uh, who passed away a couple of years back. Um, and, and, and another impressive list of individuals who graduated from Central. As it became Cardozo, um, Cardozo was the first all black senior high school uh, and it was a business school hence the 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 mascot the clerks um, because it was a business high school well there's no such animal as a clerk so you know we're, we're we have owls and um, and and I, I think of the wise potato chip commercial you know with the wise owl on the bag so so Cardozo's history is significant in so many different ways from way back when it was Central High School to it becoming Cardozo, to it becoming the first all black high school in DC uh, for business. And then ultimately now a multicultural, very internationally diverse education campus that serves six to 12th grades in DC. And, uh, and yeah, we're just super happy and excited to be here. I'm in my second year uh, as a principal after being uh, five years of being a principal at Bancroft Elementary, which is a DC public school. You know what I also read too, is that I had to look up who Cardozo was. And I read that he was one of the first black people who worked for the secretary of the treasury in the 1800s. Yes, and a prominent minister as well. And um, yes, and a very important person in uh, DC history. So indeed, yes, Francis L. Cardozo. Um, we have a beautiful picture of him. Uh, as soon as you come in through the entrance and you're in the main hallway, you have this huge majestic uh, photograph of Francis L. Cardozo. Um, and you know, the rest is just uh, a pleasure to walk through. That's so cool. 
Diane, I'm starting to think this should have been our first uh, on location episode so we could have yeah. been there in person. <laughs> I, I know, that would have been fun. Yeah, I want to I want to go. <laughs> uh Ms. Ingram, as we think about your coaching team, uh, Mr. Mola kind of talked about the school in general. Can you kind of um, narrow down what your coaching team is like and maybe all the people who make that up and what their roles are? Absolutely. So there are six of us total. Um, so we have Ms. Bobby Vertigal, who is our L support coach, and she also has a science background. We have Ms. Snyder, who is our ELA and humanities um, instructional coach. We have Mr. Tori, who is our wonderful I mean, just the most amazing technology coach probably in the district. Um, and he, he's being supported by our uh, media specialist, our librarian, Ms. Uh, G. Um, and then we also have Ms. Rogers, who is the director of the NAF Transstem Academy, who also assists um, with coaching, uh, you know, our teachers. And we're also being coached slash supervised by two phenomenal instructional leaders, Ms. O'Cansey, um, who is in charge of ELA and humanities, and then Matthew Kennedy, who is over the math, the math department, as well as the NAV transstem department. I know that there are people listening right now, just shaking their heads as they heard all the people that you just listed <laughs> off. Um, thinking about the people that have multiple buildings on their own and stuff like that. I just, I think it speaks volumes to your, uh, I mean, to your district as a whole, but to Mr. Mola also in the sense that I know that a lot of these jobs are through title funding and stuff like that. So for you guys to see the value in coaching and to know that that is how we feel like our money can be best spent. Um, I think that speaks volumes already to how you view learning. And um, we just can't wait to hear more about it as we dig deeper into this conversation. Yeah. And so with so much resource and such an incredible team, leadership becomes pivotal because you could have a lot of resource and no leadership and it won't go anywhere. And so let's dig a little bit into that. And I know, Mr. Mola, that one of your philosophies is putting students at the center of everything you do. Could you just tell us a little bit about that from your seat in this space of leading this school? How do you do that? How do you put students at the center of all of the competing demands we're sure you face every single day? Sure, I mean, I, a, a lot of this work is very personal to me. And I've shared this with my entire staff. Um, I have this saying that uh, it, it becomes kind of like an, an inside joke, but they know that it's, it's said with seriousness, right? Anytime I hear folks res refer to our students as these kids, as if to say that they are something either less than human or um, not quite like those kids. And I remind folks that for a, for a long time in my life, I was these kids. And I went to a school just like Cardozo. And I went to a school district in New York City that was very challenged during the 80s, especially for communities of color and especially in impoverished communities that were facing the epidemic of crack, AIDS, and Reaganomics. So um, for me, it, it starts there. So, so as I walk the hallways of Cardozo, I, I am a student just like the children that I'm walking beside through the hallways. So when I say I put the students at the center of everything we do, I make sure that folks understand and appreciate that that is because I was once a member you know, of this school community, even though I was you know, a few hundred miles away from here. Um, for me, it's like a homecoming to be back in the environment 
uh, of a school that I went to that was just like Cardoza. Knowing that if I could rise out of my impoverished background, out of my child of immigrant parent background, out of my single parent home background and defy all odds, right? To, to be able to somehow fight through systemic oppression, systemic racism, and find my way to become, you know, the principal at Cardozo Education Campus, then, then everything we do has to be about what the students need from us. Uh, I, I always sometimes marvel how we become so far removed from our own experience as a student that we forget what it was like to be an adolescent, a developing child, a teenager, a young adult, growing up through the most confusing times of, of their life, uh, and how important it is to have adults guiding them, right? I think back, you know, as I look at what we offer our kids today, I think back, my goodness, if I had half of this when I was growing up, what would I have been able to achieve beyond where I am right now? Um, and what could I have poured into others, you know, much younger uh, than I am now as a seasoned veteran? But that, that is how I frame it for everybody to help them understand you're looking at one of the kids that was walking these hallways once so let's get let's be about this work in such a way that we create you know we replicate ourselves in every last one of our children um, and get them ready for adulthood and and careers when you started with the idea of seeing everyone as the, the human that they are and i just i just have recently listened to a podcast about dehumanization and the scourge and, and how it's so common. And I just, I just think about being a kid in your, in your school who walks in and is seen and known and honored. And then you have the resources on top of it of good teaching and learning and all of that. And it is a gift. You must sleep very well at night, knowing you're doing the good work um, <laughs> that matters in, in the bigger society, but also in those interior lives of these kids not it's these funny. kids sorry not the you know of your kids the children. No, no, it's, <laughs> it, and, and and to be fair right like we it is so common right for us to just throw it out that way right and and it's 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 a time it's a process of time that it takes to understand that we've come up in a system that mm -hmm. has been designed for many years to to separate classes yes. of society, right? As much as we don't want to claim it and own it, and I myself have been the benefactor of white supremacist societies, right? Uh, simply, you know, based on the simple fact that I have a college degree, right? I now have entered into a different um, platform in life because of my collegiate experience. Whereas leading up to that, we don't realize, right? That a lot of what we do and say has been built upon those foundations. Um, and we just have to undo it, right? We just have to undo it. In this work, we, we have to place ourselves um, constantly and repeatedly in their shoes and not forget what it was like. But anyways, I'm sure Ms. Ingram can add some valuable pieces of information to that as well. I, Mr. Mole, I am curious though, you're talking about like that mindset to un to undo things from before. Is that something do you feel like you're having to work with your staff on, or do you feel like it's something that you guys hundred percent are on board with that? And that's just the culture at Cordoza. 
we're never done with that and, and we'll never be done with that, right? Um, it's, it's interesting because I hear oftentimes, and, and, and I'll be the first one to admit, we quickly become opponents of things like testing, SAT, AP exams, you know, and again, understanding like the structures and how those, those um, data points serve kind of like the de facto sorting mechanism of who gets to go where um, in their adulthood. But it does make me a bit frustrated sometimes when once we become a professional, now we want to tear down and talk bad about all those testing structures and all those licensing requirements when it was those exact systems that have enabled us to become the professionals who we are now. And now all of a sudden, we want to kind of eradicate, you know, those systems and structures um, for our students, but we don't have a replacement for that, right? So it's almost as if to say, we don't, we shouldn't have to provide rigorous data-driven instruction anymore um, because our students, you know, really don't need it. That's not true because college is for everyone. A good career is for everyone, right? And financial independence is good for everyone. So let's not all of a sudden now say that those things are not important when it was those things that enabled us to achieve the milestones that we did in life. And so the humanization, I think, transferred a bit to the coaching work you do, Ms. Ingram, as well. Thinking about seeing teachers as, as capable, as whole, um, it's a, could you connect to that? Were you connecting your coaching work to that part of the conversation? I'm just curious. Um, yes, because it, those are just principles that I live by just every day, just ethically and morally. I believe that there is a certain process of you know, if you want to evolve, no matter where you are in life, that there is a certain amount of things that we have to unlearn and then relearn again. Um, and so when I think about coaching and trying to just collaborate with teachers, I'm thinking about how can I get my teachers to really place themselves in the, the, you know, in the seats of students to be able to see some of the things that they're not able to see. And so then that translates to, okay, what does that look like in my coaching cycle? What questions do I need to ask? Um, what particular data do I need to look for when I'm observing a class? And I hate to use the word observation um, because again, it's not evaluative. You know, I'm just there as a second set of eyes as someone who's pointing out the direction that the students are going, um, you know, just academically. So it allows us to kind of come to the table and just, come up with a plan for each of our teachers um, to address the, the specific needs for every student. Because a lot of times we're working with different teachers, but our teachers are working with some of the same students. Um, so as a coaching team, we really come together and we lay it out all on the table and we're able to just say, okay, these are some of the trends that we're seeing and this is how we would like to undo them, undo them. And um, we just come together and develop, you know, either individual plans or whole group plans and then we go forth and we implement certain things and then we come back to the table. This went well, this didn't go well, let's change this, let's do this. And so it's just this con continuous cycle of learning and relearning and applying and unapplying. Um, and so that's just the mindset that we have as a coaching team. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't say it's because of the culture of you know leadership that Principal Mola has set forth at Cardozo. 
I've heard it said that you guys have a high expectations or even what you've called a no excuse culture. Um, how does this show up in the day to day? It shows up in a variety of ways. I think um, when, when I say a no excuse culture, um, really what I'm saying is that we, we have to have high expectations that we will refuse to compromise regardless of the situations that surround us. When I say situations that surround us, I'm talking about the, uh, the challenging circumstances that our students are arriving with, uh, some of the neglect that our students have to face, both in their community, um, through, uh, through the economical challenges that their families are faced with, and a number of other um, stressors that, that children and families uh, are, are faced with. So, so when I say having high expectations uh, and, and a no excuse approach to this work, I always say, despite all of those challenges, right? Because those things, while we can maybe uh, occasionally try to interrupt, try to uh, redirect or influence, at the end of the day, those factors, you know, have a huge amount of influence on the lives of our students. But what we do here in the building, which shows up in, you know, greeting them with a smile, loving them with a hug, whether it's now, you know, virtual or even um, a, a fist pump, you know, it's, it's communicating to every student that comes through the doors that we are happy to see you today. And, um, I liken that to the importance of customer service. So a no excuse culture means that, you know, when I'm coming across my colleagues in the hallways, you know, I'm, I'm greeting them with a smile. If I'm in the, if I work in the office, right, and a parent walks in, I'm, I'm communicating to them that I'm happy that you're here today. How can I help you? Uh, when it's a student that has an issue or a problem, it's that we are here to help you. Um, you know, when, when you think of the, the, the brain science of a teenager or an adolescent, you know, clearly the most selfish time of, of a human being's life, right? Because it's all about me and everything that's happening with me. Um, and it's us as adults understanding what that's like and being able to address the moment and meet the students where they are. Ms. Ingram talked about like meeting, you know, uh, in a lot, she talks a lot about meeting teachers where they are. But I also know that she has a very high bar uh, that she has, uh, that she arrived with. It was the reason why uh, Ms. Ingram stood out above uh, all other candidates when we were looking for a math coach. And it was clear that the expectations that she holds of herself was the kind of were the kind of expectations that we wanted uh, a coach to hold of their teachers and colleagues. So, so again, you know, when I say no excuse, I'm talking about making that everyday commitment despite all of the challenges that are around us for the sake of helping our students become uh, the best versions uh, of themselves. So, you know, for me, that shows up uh, by showing up to work on time, uh, being professional with everyone maintaining calm and professionalism under all circumstances. I tell folks, Hey, Parents come here very emotional sometimes, but you have to understand what they're being emotional about is their child. So you are not that emotionally invested in that moment. So when you're faced with this situation, do not respond to that 
by, you know, confrontation, but respond to that as a professional who's here to help bring that situation under control and get to the core of the problem, which is her child or his child. And so this, there's always then those moments when it can be a stressful situation. And sometimes in coaching that shows up with a teacher who's struggling, maybe with content or even with the SEL side of things or um, to engage with kids to be, you know, have the rigor, right level of rigor. There can be so many ways that this is a heavy lift for teachers, especially this year, but always, always for teachers. Teaching is not an easy job. And so I'm curious, um, Ms. Ingram, if you could just share with us a little bit about how it's handled when a teacher is struggling. Um, and this is kind of tr a trick question. What does Principal Mola do to engage you as a coaching team in those more challenging situations in the school? Well, luckily, um, I have not experienced a lot of um, those types of challenges this year. And I believe that Principal Mola has just, he has a very clear, concise presence and message um, that he overall, he portrays overall to the staff. And so that makes it a lot easier if I am, you know, kind of faced with a really difficult conversation or just a difficult coaching meeting where I bring it back to the students. It, it's always like, what is your why? You know, why are you here? What, what, what are we ultimately trying to give our children? And how can I support you? And it's really important that I don't forget, like I am a teacher first. The reason why I wanted to become a coach is because like Principal Mola said, I was once those kids or that child. I had a lot of different life circumstances. They, they were just set against me and I was not supposed to be where I am today. So because that, that's what my work is rooted in, it allows the conversations to be really you know, just really fluid and really natural. I noticed that you're not able to do X, Y, and Z. How can I mitigate? I'm asking questions to try to figure out, you know, what the root of the problem is so that we can try to come to a solution. Oftentimes as teachers, we, we wear the hats of trying to be the teacher, the instructional, uh, you know, specialist, the, the aunt, the psychiatrist, the, you know, we take on all of these roles and we very, like, we don't ask for help enough. And so my role is to really just make sure that the teachers that I work with know I'm another teacher. Consider me a co-teacher. Consider me someone who can be utilized as a resource and understand you don't have to do everything on your own. And so I just, sometimes I just have to take a step back and humanize them and allow them to know like you are human. We are in a very stress, stressful situation. Um, I am human too but let's make this human connection and how can I better support you? I know what you wanna to give to your children. And a lot of times we get frustrated because that doesn't necessarily, sometimes it just doesn't translate, um, but just allowing them to know like we are here to support. And if it ever escalates, then we, you know, we have a protocol where again, we bring it back to the coaches. Sometimes we have to take it to our instructional leaders. Very rarely do we have to take it to Principal Mola because we have these systems in place to try to mitigate it before it's escalated. Um, and nine times out of 10, if it is being escalated to Principal Mola, it's gonna be a situation where um, it's all hands on deck and the support that is needed is something that we can't offer as a coaching or an instructional team. One thing Mr. I heard you say in there 
mm-hmm. is that you ask questions. And I think that like that subtle coaching move speaks volumes to the teacher. It may, it says, this is a partner with me. This isn't someone who's trying to tell me how to do it because you're trying to pull that out of them. Right. Like, I feel like that's such a safe spot for other teachers when they hear you asking questions rather than you simply telling them, well, this is how you would do it better. Right. So the fact that you um, approach it in that way, I think is going to do nothing but build that rapport and relationships and we'll get them to see you as a co-teacher too. And not as this is someone who is here to fix me. And that, that was something that was really important to me as a teacher. I always, you know, I'm a teacher just naturally. I feel like I was born to teach. This is my calling. Um, and so I always think if I was in a difficult situation, how would I like to be supported? You know, I'm, I'm a human and I feel like that sometimes as teachers, it's just, you, we're in a culture where you have to constantly produce. And if you don't produce, then it's like you're not adequate enough or you're not doing a good job. So for me to ask questions is to really just figure out what is the best way for me to support this teacher and really define what that may look like. And, you know, it just allows me to, to make specific moves that are going to yield the greatest results. And then, you know, just by asking questions, it gives me a lot of insight on, you know, where a teacher may struggle or where they are struggling or, you know, a struggle that may come up in the future. And it allows us to kind of mitigate, mitigate that before it escalates into something that, you know, can kind of spiral out of control. Principal Mola, I'm guessing you use questioning too to tell him dig in when um, when you see a teacher who might need a little more support. Is that accurate? I've probably asked a lot more questions before, but I to I will say this, and, and I'm going to piggyback on what Miss Ingram just shared, uh, and it's it, it's very key, and I hope you caught this. Rarely do these instances get to me. That speaks volumes, right? to the caliber of a leader that, that she is and that other members on the leadership team are. I'd like to say, and, and they've never shared this with me, but I'd, I'd like to think that one of their goals every day is like, <laughs> I don't want this to you know, reach Principal Mola, right? Like this is something, he put me in this position to handle this, right? And as I've told you know, some members of my team, sometimes jokingly, sometimes serious, hey, if I have to do it, then what do I need you for? Right, um, and, and again, that's more so on the playful side than on the serious side, but it is kind of like a reminder, right? That this is your time to shine, right? This is your moment as a leader to show that you can handle these, these events and these moments when they arise. Uh, and then I hope to serve as a consultant and an advisor rather than the person who has to sit in the room with you to have a side-by-side conversation with this teacher. But when, when I do have moments where I have to step in, um, I, I use similar approaches in trying to get an understanding of what it is, what's the outcome that you want? Can you explain to me what is, what is successful in your mind uh, as it pertains to this uh, situation? Another thing that I would add to that is, um, and again, and I think, I was kind of waiting, you know, waiting, hoping that Miss Ingram would toot her own horn and, and ring her bell, but I'm going to do it for her. And I'm going to say this, you know, their role is really embedded and grounded in developing our staff, 
right? That, that's what the role of a coach is, right? It's to develop the teachers, to, to develop the skills, to develop the delivery and the implementation of curriculum um, in such a way that at some point, if you aspire to be a coach, an administrator, you have put in the work and you've demonstrated success at all of those levels in order to do that. She does an amazing job of that. She leads PDs, um, whether it's uh, individually or, um, or co-facilitates, and she does a fabulous job. And, and, and when I interviewed her, um, and I know we, we probably laugh quietly to ourselves about this, but I always call our candidates that I want, to, that I want the candidates that I want um, after the formal interview, I always speak to them privately afterwards. And I let them know and I ask them, hey, are you sure you want to work for somebody, you know, like myself? Because these are the things that I value. Um, and she unequivocally did not hesitate. Like, yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, so to me, that spoke volumes, right, of how she even approaches her own development um, as a professional and as a human being. I'd like to say that that is true for all of the coaches that we have on our team. It's why they're so effective at being that front line of defense. And, um, and quite honestly, and I, and I lead a professional learning community uh, once a month with aspiring leaders. And, and one of the topics was how important it is to continue learning as educators, right? That's our lifeline. The day that we stop honing our craft and developing our, um, our, our toolkit um, or our toolbox uh, is the day that you know, we stop becoming effective in this profession. Something I wanna point out is you use the word we. So that's not just something others do, that's something you as well as the leader of the school is, is committing to um, learning alongside your staff and your teachers. You guys work in Washington, D.C. with the comprehensive school plan quite a lot. And you mentioned um, Ms. Ingram doing professional learning and other ways of supporting teachers to develop. How does that plan help you stay organized or how does it guide your work given that it's really a big, beefy school improvement plan? So the CSP is something that is just really rooted in students first. Um, mm -hmm. in the, the, the various categories. Um, and so as a coaching team, we are, everything is student-centered. I wanna know, I wanna see what the students are doing. How are they responding to questions? How are they not responding to questions? How are they uh, responding to formative assessments or what hard data or soft data am I collecting in my observations? What, what is that data telling us? What is it translating? What, what is it saying to us? And it allows us again to go back to our teachers with these questions. I wonder if, why do you think, have you considered, it allows us to use that data to then like Principal Mullis said, develop our teachers and allowing them to think of their craft as a way to develop the students. It's this, it's this like this reciprocal cycle of developing, of learning and unlearning and relearning and learning new things. Um, so it really allows us to focus on the students and it's very clear, it's very explicit. So even if as a coaching team, we feel like we're not being effective, 
we can always go back to that document and say, okay, this is exactly what we're looking for as a coaching team. So it allows us to redirect um, the direction that we're going. It allows us to redirect the direction that the teacher is going so that we could, you know, ultimately exceed the goals that are written in the CSP for our students. So it's just, you know, to some schools it may just be a document, but for us, it's like a GPS, a roadmap. And our final destination is student achievement. And it looks a number of, of, a number of ways based on the different categories, categories of the CSP. Um, but it just gives us the direction. And sometimes we have to take alternate routes and sometimes we have to make detours. Um, and so that document just really serves as a roadmap to success. And it just really allows us to, to really ground and root our work in student achievement and really defining it at Cardozo. I love hearing that you guys do utilize it in that way. I think so many times, and then Diane, I know when you work with so many schools, you probably see this too. So many times these plans are like a checkbox, like, okay, I, here it is. I have it for the year. But to hear you guys actually like living and breathing through this plan and that is what the focus of student learning is all about is this plan. Um, I know that that's why you guys are seeing success is because you're not just having this plan to have it. Like you actually are using it. And like you said, it is your GPS, it's your roadmap. Um, and I just, I love hearing that because I know that, that you're only gonna continue to see results and the fruits from that because you guys are actually using what you're planning rather than just, yeah, here it is. Let's, let's now let's start the year, right? You wanna speak I, a little bit from as a principal um, and, and how that plan supports your work, Mr. Mola? Yeah, I think Ms. Ingram and Brandon, you, you two touched on it, right? All too often, and I can go back now, 20 years, school improvement plans and, and comprehensive school plans, they've always been a checklist. I, I remember how many hours we would spend creating it, and then it gets filed away, and it gets pulled out maybe a few months later when the walkthrough comes from the state or the city or whichever governing agency um, wants to ask you about it. And, and that's always been disheartening for me because I, you know, it can't, we have to be better than that. It, you can't tell me that this is the plan and you don't know what the plan says, right? Um, I can say with confidence that our coaches, our directors and our APs, they're probably tired of hearing the plan, but you know, and it's, it's funny, Ms. Ingram, you know, she, she mentioned, right? The roadmap to success. That's actually articulated in the plan. It's the roadmap to success for student achievement under the culture of achievement, because we want to create scholars who are owning their own learning. And we also want to groom that in the parents uh, as being the owners of their children's achievement. So one of the goals is that we would work toward getting to a point where students, as they're, uh, as they're entering their upper grade years, is that they're the ones that are actually running the student data conference, uh, not, not the teachers. Now, we're not there yet, uh, and, and the pandemic has definitely caused a little bit of a wrinkle to the plan, but we're still committed to that plan. And when we are able to begin to, uh, you know, return to some form of in-person touch points, uh, you know, with more consistency, we're going to come right back to that and say, okay, remember, the goal was that our students would take ownership of their learning and that that would also include involving um, our families. 
How are we going to do that? What are the steps that we need to take to get there? How are our grading practices going to reflect that? And how will um, those important weeks of either assessments as well as revising and, and giving students feedback, how are we going to deliver that in a way that the outcome ends up being the student says, I know exactly where I'm going. Um, so, so the plan drive us, drives us that way. Uh, it's not a checkbox uh, document. Uh, we look at it uh, repeatedly and regularly and we update it and revise it uh, constantly. And I've engaged members of the central office cluster support team to meet with us monthly uh, to make sure that we are uh, doing the work that we said we would do. And if we need to revise and, and, and change and modify, then so be it, we do it, but that we're holding ourselves accountable to it. That's really cool that you, you've asked for more support from your cluster. I'm sure they appreciate that um, because they're looking to partner with the schools in their cluster as well. And that's a whole nother level you're talking about bringing in to get support that we hadn't, hadn't even talked about yet. I like to think I give them purpose. Ah. <laughs> That's awesome. Mr. Molo, where do you see Cardozo in five years? Like, I know that you were someone who clearly values that plan and that vision. So I know you've thought about this. So I'm kind of curious is just where you see it this building going in the near future? Th that question always causes me to pause and also approach it with humility as well, right? Because Cardozo is bigger than Art Mola. It's bigger than Tierra Ingram. It's bigger than anybody who is working in this building. So, so when I'm asked, you know, questions like that, or, you know, where do I see Cardozo in five years? First and foremost, you know, I had to ask myself, am I, am I ready and willing to commit the number of years that it's going to take to, to get Cardozo to the place uh, that I know it can be, and it will be, so that I can then say, all right, we did it, guys. You know, I'm, I'm ready to duplicate and replicate myself in a few of you because, you know, I want to go on and, and, and move on to another um, location and institution uh, that I can hope to contribute to. Um, so, so I, I kind of, I, 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 um, I mesh that together with my own personal um, desire and what I want to do, uh, but also with what's important for Cardozo. So five years from now, I have committed to making sure that Cardozo is on a trajectory to achieve a five-star rating through the ASI um, star report card system. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with the report card, the star report card rating system, it's one star being what Cardozo is now and five star, which is the highest you can become. Uh, so, so my commitment is, you know, for these next five years that we are on an upward trajectory, moving closer to five stars, um, because if we're doing that, then students are doing well academically, they're doing well emotionally, socially. Um, they're graduating at high rates. They're going on to college. They're proficient in those metrics that are very important. Um, they are happy. They are satisfied. They are successful. It also means I have helped create a professional learning community of adults who are also very proud and uh, committed to this work. Um, so so that, that's what I see happening in five years. 
So if you are to speak to me five years from now, I hope that I can tell you that Cardozo is a much different place then than it is today. Ms. Ingram, how would you answer that question? How could I answer that question after? <laughs> I know. <laughs> after he gave that answer. Um, I just would really love, now I'm really, no matter what school I'm at, I'm really invested in seeing the school grow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think no matter where I am five years from now, I would really just love to see students taking ownership of their learning, being comfortable with facilitating their own learning, being comfortable with taking charge with their own learning. And I really will look forward to seeing how that matriculates into the community and our students then being, you know, young adults and adults and taking care of the community and just building from the inside out. I, I just really, I know that this is going to happen um, because there are the right the, the right people are in that building to make this happen. Um, so I'm really just hoping to see Cardozo flourish into not only just being a staple in the community, but creating, you know, making the community a staple in the city. There's a lot of heart in that response, right? Yeah, that, that was beautifully said. Yeah, it's not just about <laughs> statistics. It's about the human as we keep talking about the humanity within the school, but mm -hmm. I love the idea of how that then impacts the, the community mm -hmm. around the school and others that don't even attend mm -hmm. the school. Right, right. Yeah, um, it is the hub. The community is often forgotten about, mm -hmm. um, especially when we talk about education. We do a lot of stuff in between th those four walls, um, but it oftentimes does not matriculate outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and just the different experiences that I've had in DCPS, once it matriculates into the community, then we know that our job is done. Then yeah. we know that we're beyond effective, we're highly effective, we're, we're just models for you know what education should be. Mm -hmm. So that's I what love I hope that, for them. I love that you're in that role too, to where sometimes teachers might have some of those ideas of how they can push it outside of their mm -hmm. four walls, but it's when they think about all the other things that they've got going on, it's like, I don't know if, I don't know if that's worth it to me because it's going to be so much. So I love that you were in a role too, to where you could be that go between, mm -hmm. you know, to maybe even bridge that gap between that classroom and the community and to set up some of those experiences for those students that um, might not happen before. And to, to clearly hear you articulate your passion for that. I think that you're in that perfect role to make that happen. Thank you. It reminds me of the work of Jeffrey Canada in the Harlem Children's yes. Zone and how much in, um, input we need to put in to our communities to expect that community to thrive. And you're speaking to that to, to, a, to a large degree. Love that. Well, this has been such a fun conversation and has got my wheels turning in so many ways. And um, I do think a site visit sounds like it's on the, you know, <laughs> sounds like a, a place we'd love to be, get to visit, but it's just nice to hear that um, you guys have each other and the others on your team and that you're thinking together and serving kids in, in ways that will change the world. I am um, extremely happy for your students that are in your building to be able to have the the seven years in that building, talking about the opportunity for change and impact in their lives, to be in that institution for seven years 
is such a great opportunity. And I'm just so grateful um, that they have that opportunity because of people like you guys. So thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. It was great to uh, finally meet you, to hear all about the great work that you guys are doing there for kids. And just thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us and reaching out. We really appreciate it. Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast, is brought to you by Diane Sweeney Consulting. For more information, visit dianesweeney.com. Music is brought to you by Clemency. You can check them out at clemencyonline.com. There you can find more information on how to download their music. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast where podcasts are found and follow us on Twitter at SC Coaching Pod.